Contrast uncut, yeah you know that's us Where we only speak the real and the real rock with us Where we motivate the people and the politic on success Oh no we ain't DJ Kelly, but they swear we the best Contrast uncut It's Contrast Uncut. It's season three, episode 14. Man, big shout outs to Uncle Snoop's Army and Bobby D Presents. I appreciate you, brothers. It's your host, Zylo, aka DJ Juan Dollars, like I won some money. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we got a real, real special guest. He hella legendary when it comes to this hip-hop and entertainment world. And you know, there's a splash of sports in there too. He's from Maryland, right outside of Washington, D.C. He's a world-renowned journalist, podcast host, content creator, director, author of more than 10 books, and has done over 3,500 published articles in his career that spans over 25 years in the game. He's best known for his TV appearances on Unsung and the Chronicles, to countless years as the editor of The Source, Hip Hop DX, and many other major publications. He's worked with the NFL and the Baltimore Ravens. I mean, I'm gonna keep on going because this brother is just a machine. He's been a co-host with Exhibit on K-Day back in the day that I used to enjoy, created documentaries and shined a much needed light to the game. He's interviewed some of the biggest in the game, has been accepted by the biggest names in the game. And you know, it's not that easy when you come from this side. And this brother's been around from Jay-Z to Eminem to Tech 9 to Jay Prince to Snoop Dogg to Ice-T and so, so many more. He's the host of Soren Baker Podcast and the host of Unique Access ENT Entertainment on YouTube. His story and what he's seen in, the, in this industry is unparalleled to anyone. Like the group from CPT, Soren Baker is second to none. Soren, how you doing, brother? Man, I don't appreciate that uh, intro, man. That was uh, pretty phenomenal. I appreciate uh, all the kind words, man. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Come on. All I'm doing is just saying what I've read and, and what I've seen. Like, you know, watching the Chronicles last week, and I was like, oh, I know this brother because I've just seen him on Unsung when I was looking up something else. Oh, okay. And then, you know, the, the trace keeps on going. It's like, I do remember that person. And... You know, that's the beauty of what this industry does. It gives you an opportunity to recognize and then represent. Yeah, man. I've been uh, fortunate to be able to be in the game since I was a teenager, man, and still keeping it pushing, man. That's right. That's right. Now, Soren, I got to tell you, time's the most finite thing we have on this earth, brother. So I got to make sure I tell you I appreciate your time. And the viewers, you know, they're going to appreciate your story as well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, bro. I gotta ask, what's it normally like for you in like 24 hours? What's a day in the life with Soren? Man, well, fortunately, I got two uh, beautiful ladies, man. I got my daughter who's 10, Lauren. I got my woman, Davida. So, uh, you know, on the best days, I'm with them the majority of the day. And then now that we're in COVID, I'm doing a lot of stuff via Zoom, on the phone, uh, more so than you know, sometimes I still dip out to do stuff in person, but I keep that to a minimum. So I'm doing a lot of Zoom interviews, a lot of phone interviews, uh, working on uh, my next book. I got a book that's coming out in October with Gucci Mane. And then I got, uh, you know, Unique Access going on, Unique Access Entertainment. Everybody subscribe, like, and share that on YouTube, please. And then uh, 
do a lot of writing for Flood Magazine and for LL Cool J's Rock the Bells. So I got a lot of stuff that I do and I still do other writing behind the scenes for people uh, in addition to everything else. So I'm basically working on all those things and also working on getting more into television and film. So I, I've been fortunate to stay very busy even during the quarantine and arguably maybe even more because now it's just so much to do, so. Right, right. And normally I say this for the end of the show, but since you brought it up, I want to make sure I give you your flowers now for being a dedicated father and husband. It is not an easy job being a husband and a dad and working in this industry, chasing your dreams and living the dream because you still got to come back to responsibilities and accountability when you get home. Yes, sir. Well, we're, we're going to be getting married. We're not married yet, but we're going to be. See, there you go. I feel like common law is already set in for you, so I think you're trapped anyways. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> so, Soren, I got a quote. Let me know how this quote relates to you, or if it doesn't, it's all good. The idea is I want you to talk about it. Are you ready? I'm ready, man. My whole thing is to inspire, to better people, to better myself forever in this thing that we call rap, this thing that we all call hip-hop. Kendrick Lamar. Yeah, that definitely applies to me in the sense that I got into the music industry and writing about it and being in it because I loved it and I wanted to celebrate it and champion it. And through being a writer, I also, depending on where I was writing at the time, most notably in this regard for the LA Times and Chicago Tribune, but I, you know, I had to review albums and review concerts. so. You know, if I didn't think something was good, I would say it. But um, overwhelming majority of things that I prefer to do is to do my interviews and really champion and celebrate and identify the artists that I think have helped push the genre forward and that have delivered a lot of incredible material. And that's why I got into rap, because I love it. So, you know, I'm friends with Dana Dane, and I've been able to interview him several times over the years and talk about how his storytelling helped change the game. And I'm huge fans with Above the Law. And I've talked about them in my book, The History of Gangster Rap, and how their influence on what came after them. And Schooly D's my favorite artist of all time, and I talked about how he created Gangster Rap, which was one of the reasons why I inspired The History of Gangster Rap, my book that's out now. And then Ice T's another guy that now that he's an icon and an actor, I think people forget the magnitude of material that he released and how phenomenal he is as an artist. So all that to be said, I try to always do that. And then with the newer artists like Ben Staples, for instance, somebody that came out in the 2010s that I think is an amazing artist, I really try to get, you know, show why and explain why not only is someone like Ben Staples good, talented, but that, in my opinion, he would have been one of the elites back in the day, too. You know, his talent, his writing, his stories, the way he plays. He's amazing. Oh, yeah. Northside Long Beach. Salute. <laughs> okay, okay. No, I like, when I read this quote, it stuck to me right away when I think of you, because, number one, you are definitely the voice of of a, of a genre that needs a voice outside of the music. It needs a storyteller. And I feel like you've done an extravagant job, not only telling the story, but representing the people involved. 
And that's something I, I, I admire, I appreciate. And when I read that, this quote, it was like, boom, that's a no brainer. No brainer. And you know, here we are and I present it to you. No, I appreciate it. Thank you. Come on, let's go, let's go. I gotta ask you, Soren, did the game choose you or did you choose the game? I mean, uh, I guess you can look at it either way, but I had to, you know, being from Maryland and growing up where at the time it was really, I grew up right in between Baltimore and DC. DC was really in the go-go and Baltimore was really in the house. And at that time, there wasn't that much rap coming from my area. So, uh, and my parents are school teachers. I didn't have some uncle in New York that worked in the music business or some cousin that, you know, was some movie star or something. I had to like figure everything out on my own. Right. So I really, uh, the game chose me as far as making me a fan, but then I chose the game as far as trying to get into it as a profession. So I think it worked, uh, I think it worked both ways. And, you know, it's been my dream since I was 12 to be able to do this. And every day I'm grateful for that because 10 is when I fell in love with rap and 12 was when I realized I wanted to try to figure out how to do something with rap by any means necessary. And I figured it out and I'm still figuring it out and hope to keep getting bigger and better with it. But that was something that before I was a teen, I realized it and then I've been able to really do that. So I've been very fortunate. You know, those that don't know, Baltimore, Be More is hella grimy. Washington, DC, outside of the capital, is hella grimy. And you know, I got a sister and family that lives in Annapolis and what is it? Ocean Cities or something like that. But she's a real estate agent. She, you know, so she sold a lot of properties in Baltimore and DC. So I'd go with her. And, you know, I've only been out there twice. <laughs> I'm talking about something years ago, but that impression always stuck with me that, nah, Baltimore and DC is not somewhere to play around and act like you're from somewhere and keep your head out. Especially being from the West Coast, they automatically don't like me. So, you know, you just gotta keep to yourself and observe. Yes, that's, that's why a lot of times I stay quiet. <laughs> Boy, as long as you understand to not be a fly in the room, but be a sponge, you already are a lot further in the game than you think you are. Everyone watching. Yep, that's true. I gotta ask you, brother, what was your first confirmation that entertainment, this journalism is what you're supposed to do? Like, what was the first time you said, you know what, this is this is what I'm supposed to do? Even if I gotta jump through hoops, cover something I don't wanna cover and get there, I'm gonna get there. Well, I've had so many experiences with that. Um, you know, my first rap article I ever did I asked my school newspaper, I went to Xavier University in Cincinnati, and I asked them if I could write about rap because I saw they weren't writing about it. And they were like, yeah, sure, but go review some plays. I was like, all right, that's what I got to do. So I reviewed one play, and then I asked them if I could now write about rap. And they're like, sure, what do you want to do? And um, they let me review an Ed OG and the Bulldogs album, but I didn't know how anything worked. I had that album. I didn't know how to reach out to a label. I didn't know... They sent you albums, I didn't know anything. And what clicked for me was I got paid $5 for the album review. And right there, it kind of made me think like, well, wait a minute, I could get paid to write? Like, I, it didn't even seem within a realm of possibility for me. And even though it was more of a symbolic amount of money, it just got, gave me the idea that, oh, I could really try to do this because I'm sure 
if my school newspaper is paying five dollars by the time i got to some heavyweight publications they would pay a lot more and they did so i started hustling and then um so many artists from Schooly D to Big Hutch from Above the Ball to Snoop Dogg, LL Cool J, Dana Dane, they've all exhibited, they've all said so many great things to me uh, during the interviews, after the interviews, Dr. Dre, Ice Cube, all these guys that I've gotten to know in different ways over the years, but so many of them have been so supportive and complimentary of me that I realized like, not only do I love it, but they can tell I love it. And they seem to like me. Like I've been to all the guys I just mentioned in IST as well. Most of them I've been to at least one of their houses at least multiple times, you know, or I've spent time with them on a personal level outside of interviewing them. And that's something also that's been like mind blowing that, you know, I've been to three of Snoop's houses and Ice Cube drove me around one day when we were just talking and, you know, Exhibit uh, son and my daughter played together 30 times. So it's just like that level of, uh, I guess, mutual respect, you would say, is like amazing to me for the guys that I grew up idolizing and, and admiring and all that type of stuff to where, you know, now it's not unusual for me to talk to them or them to reach out to me or that's just mind-blowing man you know so absolutely and i mean brother your your passion is genuine and that's one thing that everyone can register you don't have to be blind you don't have to be deaf you can feel it that you know your passion is very genuine and that's something that definitely separates yourself as soon as you start to speak you know personally from my experience i was blessed in the situation to be with Snoop Dogg, Uncle Snoop's Army, and Bobby D Presents based upon just my genuine passion. And then they said I'm very organic with my sensibility. They said I'm real psychedelic, like Post Malone was his exact words. And so my question to you, my brother, is that, you know, what do you feel like is your cup of noodles that steps out and stands out above everybody else's? Well, I think it's that I love it genuinely, but then beyond that, it's that at one point when I used to travel a lot for work, um, to give you an example on how this all ties in everything, when I first met Snoop, I was in college, I was interviewing him, and he, had, he was doing a show in Virginia, so I drove down to Virginia to interview him, and when I was interviewing him, I asked him, I don't remember why, but however the conversation went I asked him about King T and Above the Law and he was like oh you from LA what part of LA you from I was like no I'm from Maryland man I drove down he's like wait a minute you from Maryland I was like yeah go. I was like at that point in my life I've been to LA one day and that was to work um, to interview Westside Connection so when uh, Snoop said that to me that's when I also realized Squee D had said similar things like, oh man, when I met Squee D, I'd interviewed him over the phone and he thought I was like an older black man from my voice, how I talk and my knowledge of music. And I interviewed Schooly also the first time when I was in college, like when I was 20. So all these guys, again, that I looked up to and admired, they were telling me like, oh man, I thought you were older. Oh man, I thought you were from LA. So anywhere that I traveled, like if I was in the South, people would think I was from the South because of how much I knew from the South. When I got to LA, they'd be like, oh man, 
Snoop was like, what part of LA are you from? I'm like, I'm from Maryland. So other than New York, everywhere I went, people thought that's where I was from. So that also, I think makes me different because I love all types of rap equally. And, you know, thankfully I've had a lot of success with the history of gangster rap and gangster rap is among, if not my favorite type of rap, but I also equally love everything. So it's kind of funny when uh, on my unique access, for instance, I interviewed Fiend and I saw in one of the comments, they're like, oh man, you're interviewing people from the 504. I'm like, yeah, I have since, you know, since I got in the game, man. Like I've traveled to New Orleans so many times to interview cash money artists or no limit artists. And uh, back in the 90s, especially, but I mean, it was just, it's just funny because there's a perception that, cause I live in LA and I wrote the history of gangster rap and a lot of my unique access stuff is West Coast. That that's all I like, but also on Unique Access, I have David Dane on there, I have Talib Kweli's on there, I have David Banner on there, I have Big Gip on there, I have Sadat X on there, I have Lord Finesse on there, I got Yuckmouth on there, so it's not all just LA stuff. Um, and I'm working on getting a lot of a lot of other big dogs also. Oh yeah, no, from the Bay to the East Coast to the South to the Midwest, bro, you don't leave any area untouched. And that's something that's really important to understand that, you know, when you're really trying to be for it, you can't sit there and pick and choose. It's either you're for it or you're against it. And you definitely understand that. A lot of people like to be on the fence and pick and choose. And it's like, bro, you're not genuine. That's not real. That's you trying to compensate for what's being hyped. And, you know, you clout chasing. And I got to make sure I tell you that as well. But I really appreciate how you handle it because. That, that sets the standard here. You got all these jokes over here and it's like people recognize and respect the standard more than the jokes. That's why I'm trying to always be one of the standard bearers. Yes. Absolutely. I got to ask you, Soren, what are some of the highs and lows that you face so far during your you know journey to success? Of course, that you're willing to discuss. I mean, the highs are like uh, all these artists, you know, calling me or working. I remember the first time I, I wrote something for Ice Cube's record label and I got a check from Ice Cube and he signed it. Like that was crazy. I did a bio for him uh, and it was a Lynch Mob Records and I got the check and he had signed it. That was crazy. I did a, I'd interviewed LL Cool J and then I, you know, I told my girl at the time, I was like, yo, he, I think he really liked me. And then um, when he performed that night, he shouted me out by name on stage. He saw me and he's like, yo, my man Soren Baker's in the house. And I'm like, yo, that's LL Cool J just shouted me out. Like, that's crazy. And uh, and now I get to write for him and work for him and with him at Rock the Bells. So that's, it's just amazing that some of these guys like LL that I first heard when I was 10, that now he knows me and I work with and for him. And I'm uh, working on some other things to try to do some more big stuff with LL. But like those type of things are phenomenal. And, and that is some of the best things. Uh, Chino XL was the first one to ever thank me on an album. So he, he uh, thanked me in his liner notes and I've been thanked on like about 30 to 35 albums. Uh, Twister, Razkaz, there's been so many. Uh, Talib Kweli, uh, Reflection Eternal, and Hot Tech, they thanked me on an album. 
So that's crazy. And then people like Razkaz and Stat Quo have actually mentioned me in songs. So that's, it's just so many things, man. I've gotten like a lot of golden platinum plaques over the years. I've been able to do a lot of stuff, man. Travis and Technon over at Strange Music let me uh, do, write and produce and co-direct some DVDs that they put out, working for VH1. And, and now the other thing is, another high is that when I call the artist that I know just to be on Unique Access, it's just amazing that they'll do it. Like MC Ren, who I've known since the 90s, he's told me a lot of great things over the years and I've had a lot of great personal conversations with him. But an interview I did with him on Unique Access just passed a million views. So that's um, phenomenal that my channel, which I'm trying to get to 100,000 subscribers, but I got 20 some thousand, that I got a million views on something. Like that's amazing. And you know, I'm, I'm uh, thankfully I got help from my friends, but I'm doing a majority of the work myself. And then my friends help me, which is the only reason I'm able to even do it. But to have a, essentially a small staff and to be able to get something that gets a million views. And then one of my Jay Prince interviews has almost 300,000 views. That just lets me know I'm pushing in the right way and still doing a thing. Uh, you know, uh, people have to realize something. They have to realize that when you walk into a barbershop and you're getting a part of the conversation that blew your mind, you have to realize that that was talked up, the dialogue was built up for that part that you walked in and heard that blew your mind. And they have to understand that from the interview person or, you know, the person conducting the interview, you have to have the questions. You have to have the stuff that makes sense. You have to have the stuff that flows. And if you don't have it, you over there looking not only bad, but you've lost your opportunity. And that's one thing that you can attest to yourself is that you don't let opportunities slip out your hands. Once you grab it, you hold them. You got vice grips. Got to, man. That's the only way you're going to stay in the game, man. 100%. So the markets are there and you have proven it over and over again when it comes to documentaries and the history of hip hop. What has been one of the biggest struggles to overcome of getting an idea off the ground into the light of the audiences? I mean, the main thing is now I'm trying to turn like my book, The History of Gangsta Rap into a series. And it's really taken the success that I've had and pushing it to a deeper level with film and television in particular. I've had several books out now and I'm trying to do more and more books. And now I have my eyes and my focus on doing documentaries, feature films and television series as a writer, producer, director, those type of things. That's really the thing that I'm striving for and working on. You know, I'd written a movie for Snoop uh, that, you know, we had some good momentum going on. So once this COVID stuff gets over, I got to reach back out to him and see where we're at. But that's really my goal and what I'm trying to work on and, and that I haven't got to where I want yet. Cause I want to be to where Unique Access and Soren Baker, people are looking at us like a studio, like, hey Soren, we want to do this feature film. Hey Soren, we want to do this documentary. Hey Soren, we want to do the scripted series and we want you to be able to either produce it and put it out through your company or to partner with us to help us make it right. And that's something that I've done in different ways for BH1, for Fuse, for the shows I've written and produced for them. And then through working with Strange Music and Capitol Records to do DVDs and bonus content for them. And then 
you know, doing all that, that's how I ended up getting on the No Limit Chronicles, which just aired on BET, and I was in all five of the episodes of that. So, you know, I'm trying to keep doing all that, but then push further into the, you know, the studio side of things to where I'm like one of the main hubs for content creation and distribution. Oh yeah, no, you're definitely there. It's just a matter of when the stuff comes out that we're able to say, like as a collective, like, boom, this is the go-to person, go-to person. Shit, I ain't gonna lie to you. I'd like to work for you, damn it. <laughs> well, hopefully one day I'll need a staff and I'll be hitting you up. There you go, there you go. So I took a history of hip hop class at UC Santa Barbara my freshman year of college. And the professor pretty much made the class about hip hop, but he went into details about Too Short. And, you know, he had this book on Too Short that he wrote and explained the hustle, the get up, how he was born in LA, moved to Oakland when he was in high school, and then how everybody fronted him stuff so that he could be this face on the uh, cassette cover. And, you know, a lot of that story has resonated with me because I got a good grade in the class. But it was, I'm reading about you and everything. A lot of your books need to be in universities as well around the world, teaching the world about the history of rap music. Like they need to have these classes more because the history of rock and roll is one point, but the phenomenon and the resurgence of music is through hip hop and rap music. And I feel like the history of gangster rap out now, by the way, worldwide, I must, you know, I gotta make sure that, you know, I get that thought in your mind that you should be pushing these books to these schools and universities so that, you know, the, the ability inside the mind that's trapped and that is afraid of success and has all these gifts sometimes get scared. And, you know, if they know that there's a history out there and a blueprint that they can go ahead and use, why not pursue it and push it and make it worldwide? Absolutely. I've been fortunate to, during the run of the History of Gangster Rap book that I wrote, be able to go and talk at a few places, uh, one being UCLA, they had me on a panel there and then I was able to speak at LA Valley College so that was good and then I was I actually had gotten booked and flights and everything to go to University of Colorado Boulder but then COVID hit I was supposed to go in the spring so that didn't work out unfortunately and then I had a few places in Atlanta and other things that didn't end up happening because of COVID but as far as teaching a class uh, I would love to be able to do that at a university level and you know as a guest speaker because one thing that I want to do with my book and then the other books that I have in the works now is do like lecture tours to where with the history of gangster rap if I was in LA then I would have you know Ice Cube and we would talk and Dana Dane did that with me in LA and I want to have it like an event to where I could have speakers MERS Bill Duke and Dana Dan. I did three different uh, interview talks with the three of them, but I'd like to do more of them. Uh, and then if I went to the Bay, you know, to get somebody like a Too Short or a Yuck Mouth, even though in theory or whatever, they're not necessarily gangster rappers, but imagine if I went to Sacramento and did it with SIBO, or I did one in Houston with Scarface, or I did, even though it had to be the early stuff like JT Money in Miami with Poison Clan, or, you know, Twister or Psychodrama in Chicago with Legendary Trackster, like all that type of stuff, or, you know, Gucci Rap or uh, Karis One or Just Ice in New York. So if I was able to have those type of events and have them going on a regular basis, 
you know, that's something that I would love to do and I'm working on that. But, you know, the COVID stuff slowed everything down and then thankfully I've been able to keep going in other arenas. So it's just in-person things a little more difficult right now. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Trying to make someone comfortable during an uncomfortable time is a lack of confidence in the situation. Therefore, it's better to leave it undone or to Zoom. Yes, yes. What is one thing people got fucked up about the industry? I mean, there's always exceptions to the rule, but I think that you can make it and not try hard. Uh, hmm. That's definitely not true. You're gonna have to really work and you're gonna have to stay on top of your game. Of course, there are exceptions to that, but just looking at Snoop as an example, Snoop's put out hundreds of songs, maybe even thousands at this point, but Snoop stays active. Snoop is doing 37 things a week. And that's not a coincidence. That's why he's successful. And he never, whether this album sold as much as that one or that one sold as much as that one, Snoop has always stayed doing something and staying active. And he's an icon, so he doesn't need to do it, but he does. Snoop has... You know, he had his charity stuff with the Snoop Youth Football League. He's at television, he's at films, he's hosting, he's putting out other artists, he's a recording artist, he's making beats, he's hosting GGN, he's doing all kinds of things. And that's, no one I think could legitimately ever say that Snoop doesn't work hard or isn't working. Snoop is constantly doing stuff. And then when you look around, the icons of the game, they all have that in common. Ice-T is still doing all kinds of stuff. Ice Cube is still doing all kinds of stuff. Dr. Dre doesn't put out a lot of music, but he's always recording and he's always got stuff going on. Like people may not realize he produced for Alicia Keys, It's a New Day. Like that's a Dr. Dre song with Swiss Beats, but it's a Dr. Dre production. So even though he's not putting out as much as he used to, he's still putting out material. And then you look at the LL Cool J's, like I mentioned earlier, he's got Rock the Bells, he's got NCIS LA, he's got so much stuff that he's doing. That's the difference between the people that make it and last for 20, 30 years and getting on 40 years for some of these guys versus, you know, you could be around for, you know, a couple months or even a year or two, but the guys that, and the women that keep reinventing themselves, keep putting out new material, keep doing stuff like the Queen Latifahs of the world, that's who sticks around. And even look at Nicki Minaj. Look at her run now. It's getting uh, to 10 years plus. That's Nicki Minaj. People think, oh, she's new or whatever. Like, no, you look at it. She's been around a long time now. <laughs> oh, yeah. She had big sacrifices to get where she's at. No, you brought up so many incredible people that, you know, it definitely influences why that statement is fucked up because shit is not easy. Yeah, you, you're absolutely right. There's a few exceptions that fall through the cracks, but they don't last long. And everybody you named off is relevant and still doing something to not only keep their name, but their brand moving in, in the same energy and same power as they did where they were at the highest of their career. And that's something that you have to appreciate and love. Absolutely, man. So on the vice of that question, what is something that Soren Baker thinks the game is lacking? Uh, I think one thing that the game is lacking is quality control in the sense that when I was growing up, 
And for the first 10 or 15 years of my listening to music, there was a certain level of gatekeeperness that kept this avalanche, this flood, this tidal wave of material from being released. Part of it was a tech technology or technological limitation because of cost, because of resources, because of access. But after that, after it became the economical hurdle was removed as far as the expense to get recording equipment and to get stuff out. And now it's accelerated because it's so easy to make a video that that's a big difference. And it's, in my opinion, a big problem because when I was growing up, just to use round numbers, if there were a hundred groups and you like 30 of them, it was easy to find those 30 groups. Whereas now, even if there's 300 groups, there's a thousand or 10,000 groups out. It's just way harder to find them and it's way harder for the quote unquote better artists to most people to get exposure. Because whether, regardless of what type of rap you like, that type of rap, unless it is the most pop rap, is not going to get the same attention that popular rap would have gotten even 10 years ago now because of how much uh, music comes out, how many videos come out, how fast everything is. That's a huge difference and that is a quality control issue in my opinion because now it's so easy for anybody to do anything on the music or uh, video side as far as creating and releasing it. Whereas that wasn't the case 15, 20, 25 years ago. Right. And there's so many different platforms so that you can become a phenomenon overnight, whether it's a TikTok sensation, an Instagram sensation or old school YouTube. Like the, the abilities and probabilities are still greater than ever. But at the same time, you're absolutely right. It's so saturated that the quality control has definitely been removed. And, and I mean, in reflection, you can also see that the quality control on, on radio has been removed as well because now people pay more for playlists and they do trying to hear on radio. Makes sense, because everybody's streaming. Yep, it's so cold how they did the game. And a lot of the old school folks hated that it transitioned. A lot of young school people loved it. But you know, there was a thing called Napster that fucked it up and regulated everything. And people forget about that. Yeah, Napster had a big impact, Most, <laughs> mostly negative. <laughs> It robbed people. What would you be doing if you weren't in entertainment? I don't really know, man. I've been uh, fortunate that in college I started freelancing for most of the main rap magazines as well as some newspapers. So when I was in college, I was writing for Rap Sheet, Rap Pages, The Source, Herb, and then also at the same time I was writing for Everybody's News, which was the free weekly newspaper in Cincinnati. I also wrote for the Cincinnati Post, among others. So I didn't get a job right away when I graduated from college, but then I started writing for, once I graduated, I went back to Maryland and I was living with my parents. And then I started writing for the New York Times and Chicago Tribune and Vibe. And then I got a job at Rap Pages. So my only real adult job has been in, as a journalist, or related to journalism. Whereas before that, you know, I just had, you know, I worked at KFC, I worked at a movie theater near my house, I worked those type of jobs. So other than 
you know, the music related stuff. I've never had another job. So if I wasn't doing this, I'd want to be working for the Baltimore Ravens probably. So I'd still be in home, at home, but I'd be working for the Ravens. There you go. Now I feel you'd be a dope sports broadcaster. That'd be my dream job for sure. For sure. Personally, bro, that's always been my dream is to be a sports broadcaster. And then I fell in love with music. And then I tried to get into the music world as a manager and it didn't work out that well because, you know, you have to have talent and talent has to sort of do the amount of work and you don't have to forefront everything. But certain things don't work out because of the relationship. But you learn so much from it that you have relationships and it parallels you to or propels you to the next thing in which I'm here today. Congratulations, man. Oh, thank you, brother. Uh, this is my top three segment. I normally don't do this, but I got to ask you because you have so much. Your top three favorite articles that you've written. And then I also got to ask about interviews, your top three interviews. And I got to ask about your album. I'll ask you each one individually, but I want your opinion because one, your opinion matters. And if you haven't noticed, the TV's call for you because your opinion matters. So I want to know. All right, which one do you want to start with? Let's start off with your favorite articles, top three. Uh, so one of my favorite articles I did, and a lot of people loved it, uh, was an article I did when Ice-T put out his greatest hits album on Atomic Pop. So I think the year was 2000. And I even interviewed Big Boy for it from uh, 92.3, but Big Boy called me about it and told me how much he liked it. I know Ice-T and his manager really liked it and I interviewed Ice for it. But the thing was, was that I got a lot of feedback on it because at that point, Ice-T was big into, you know, he had had a lot of film success, he had had a lot of television success and he was just getting on Law & Order, SVU. But my article was, I mentioned some of that stuff, but my article was really about the brilliance of his music. And I think even in 2000 era, people were starting to forget the magnitude of his music. And my article really shined a light on that because I talked about the songs that were on the greatest hits, but then I also talked about, which I also do in my book, The History of Gangsta Rap, why I think Ice-T is so brilliant in the sense that he talks about the pros and the cons and the highs and the lows of the street life. He doesn't glamorize it at all. And that's what the best, in my opinion, the best gangster rap does is it shows reality. That's why originally they called it reality rap or street reporting or, you know, ghetto stories or whatever people called it before the media really named it gangster rap. So that article really stood out and that was 2000. I believe in the LA Times. 20 uh, yeah, there you go. That was one. Another one from the LA Times is when I, this I have a lot of reasons why I like it, but I did an article on Snoop Dogg in the LA Times where I interviewed him when he was on uh, the Game of Life set when he was doing a movie with Master P. Mm -hmm. So that was 98. And this was my first time seeing him since I had interviewed him when I was in college. And when I went up to meet him, he was like, oh, I was like, oh, Snoop, man, it's Soren Baker, you know, I, I, I don't know if you remember, but um, I met you back last year at Lollapalooza. He goes, no, no, you the dude, you the dude that like uh, Above the Lawn King T, right? 
And I was like, whoa. So he remembered me. He didn't remember my name at that point, but he knew who I was. And that like blew me away. And then I wrote the article, it came out, and that was for the Game is to be Sold, Not to be Told album. And when I went into one of my editors, my main editor at the LA Times, Robert Hilburn, I went into his office one time. He had the article on the wall. He had to put it up. And I was like, what are you doing with that on the wall, Bob? And he was like, that was a great article, Soren. I really liked that. That's probably my favorite article you've done for us so far. And that was a guy who, in effect, helped create, if not outright created, pop music journalism. And he ended up being my one of my main editors, but then he also really liked that article. So that, I really liked it too, but when I saw the effect it had on him especially, that made it uh, great to me. And then uh, as far as other articles, one of my other favorites was when I interviewed Project Pat one time for XXL and I went to Memphis. And that one I loved just because when I read it, I felt that no one had done a story like that with Project Pad, and I had known him at that point for several years, and he gave me a lot of really amazing insight into his emotions and his feelings and his personality that, you know, it was like a 2,000 word article, so I had room to really explain stuff, but then also, you know, I spent like two days with him, so, and I was there just for that. I only went to Memphis to hang out with Project Pad, and, you know, he took me to Arkansas. I'd never been to Arkansas before. And we did all this stuff and it was just, um, he showed me the little project that he and Juicy J grew up in. And I'd been to Memphis with them probably four, three or four times at that point. And it just meant a lot to me that I was able to do a big article on him. And like Ice-T, Project Pat, especially on the Mr. Don't Play Everything's Working album, really explains the downfalls of being in the streets. And he does it in a very, very powerful way over, in my opinion, with Juicy J and DJ Paul, some of the best beats in rap history. They're like phenomenal producers that don't get enough credit. But that article, I just really like. So those are three that for different reasons really resonate with me and that I really enjoy. See, personally, there was a saying I used to always say back in the day coming up, and it was reality to mainstream. And it was taking the reality of what we saw and pushing it to mainstream. And as you're speaking, it hit me right now like a ton of bricks is that you're pretty much one of the founders of making that comfortable from going from reality to mainstream and, and pretty much talking about it from your perspective and making it okay and acceptable. Because if you didn't give that stamp back in the day, they didn't get no love. Well, a lot of artists have told me that, man, that, that I was like the first person to really write about them on a major scale or the first one to really embrace them. And so that really feels good. Like Little John told me that, and I know that. And I know I was also the first one to write about Little Wayne for MTV News. So there was a lot of uh, big artists that I wrote about very early in the game. Three Six is another one, but uh, Master P is another one. So. It's uh, very gratifying on that regard, but then also people like Above the Law or Content's Most Wanted, um, DJ Quick, that had a lot of popularity, but then didn't get as much maybe respect or acknowledgement in the bigger publications whenever I was able to write about them also. 
Dub C's another one. I just felt very excited because I love all those guys' music so much and they, in my opinion, all had phenomenal material. So I wanted to make sure that they got some exposure. And then even like with Unique Access, I've had a few interviews with OC and from Digging in the Crates and I really, I've always really liked and loved OC's material. So it was great when he was like, yeah, I'll do an interview with you, Soren. Cause I didn't know him or anything. I just hit him up. I posted, I was listening to some of his music and he said, thank you or whatever. And I just DM'd him. I'm like, hey man, I want to interview. He's like, for real? I was like, yeah, man, you're OC. I love the interview. So, you know, but he's, you know, one of those type of artists that I think has made some great music, but that needs a little more exposure from the media side of things. So I'm trying to, you know, promote that. Absolutely. And that leads, I got to know, top three interviews you've done. Well, my favorite interview of all time was my first time talking to Schooly D. So he's my favorite rapper. And when I entered, uh, I'd been, I was in college and I was trying to track him down because he's my favorite. And uh, his publicist was, you know, I was working with her and she was setting it up and all this. And she just called me one day. She's like, Soren, do you still want to interview Schooly? I was like, of course. She's like, oh, can you do it in like five minutes? And I had literally come in from cutting my parents' grass or something. I, I hadn't prepared, I hadn't done nothing. And I was like, yeah, I'll do it. And I ended up talking to him for about three hours. And at the end of the conversation, he's like, man, it's amazing. I don't do that many interviews, but I'm glad I did this because you know so much about my music. And, you know, I could tell you've been in the game and studied and all this. And I'm in college and I was like 20. But the fact that I knew all this stuff and loved it, again, when he met me the next year in person, he thought somebody was playing a joke on him because here I am, this 20-year-old, 21-year-old white kid, and he thought I was an old 50-year-old black man or something. So it was just, that interview just meant a lot to me just because I'd always, since I was 12 years old, probably been one to interview him and I was, or talk to him. And that was like eight or nine years later. Um, LL Cool J in Chicago was another one of my best interviews because when I interviewed him, he, I think, is the best rapper of all time. And when I interviewed LL, at the end of it, I just said, hey, man, I was interviewing him for the Chicago Tribune. And I said, hey, if you got like five or 10, 15 minutes, I had all these questions I wanted to ask you, but I've never got a chance to ask you. He's like, yeah, sure, I got a couple minutes. And so after like the third or fourth question, he was like, yo man, who are you? And he grabbed my little, he grabbed my little notepad. He wrote his number down. He was like, yo, keep in touch with me, man. I really like you. Like, you know your stuff. And that just blew me away because I think he's the best rapper ever and still is. And he was so, I think, shocked at these obscure random LL Cool J questions I was asking him. And then, you know, we kept in touch for a couple of years after that because I would call him or he would check in with me and vice versa. And that just meant the world to me because again, when I was 10, the first song of his I heard was I Need a Beat. And that really was one of the songs that made me love rap. And here I was, uh, I guess, around 15 years later and he's telling me, or, 15, 16, 17 years later, and he's giving me his phone number and telling me to keep in touch with him. So that was crazy. And then I told him I wrote a, 
I wrote and produced the show for VH1 on Eminem's The Marshall Mathers LP. And when I, he asked me what else I did other than his writing, and I told him that, he was like, you wrote that? He goes, I seen that, I seen it like three times. That was incredible. So like, those type of things are phenomenal. Um, and then I think one of the other ones I had interviewed Big Hutch from Above the Law over the phone one time. And he had said at the end of the interview, he's like, yo man, and this was probably in around 97. So they had been out about seven years at that point above the law. And he said to me, he goes, yo man, it's really good talking to you because a lot of the people that I do interviews with now, they were like in middle school or something when I came out. So they don't know much about me. And the irony was I was in middle school when they came out, but he had no idea and he didn't know that. And so now like me and Hutch are friends and we talk and hang out outside of interviews and stuff. But like those three for very similar, but different reasons, Schoolie D, LL, and Big Hutch from Above the Law. And even that Snoop interview, the first one, there's so many, I, I could tell you like 50 interviews. I could literally just keep going through them all. There's so many that I've had, but I've just been very fortunate, man, because I, I get, I'm living my dream, man. I really am. Like every day I get to listen to music and interact with somebody almost every day about music. And that's my dream. That's a blessing. That's a blessing. I'm going to transition to my three segments, brother. Take a pause on the entertainment. And, you know, I definitely want to just, just bask in my three segments. So here we go. All right. I got my awareness segment. It's about police interaction. I asked all my guests when was the last time they were pulled over and what's advice that they can give to someone in the situation of being pulled over and interacting with the police. Thankfully, I haven't got pulled over in a while, but and being white obviously helps with that, I would imagine. But um, since I have got pulled over several times uh, on my own, and then when I've been in cars, either driving or with my friends who are black that were driving or whatever, you know, I always just try to keep my hands on the steering wheel, answer the questions directly without any explanation, but just very direct and then always just try to show respect as much as possible in the circumstances to try to make sure nothing escalates. You know, I've had situations where I got pulled over by myself. I've had situations where I was in a car and we got pulled over. Uh, and I've had situations where, or where I got pulled over where I was a passenger and it was me and my black friends. Or I've had a situation where I was driving and my black friend was in the car with me. and. You know, so I've had a variety of scenarios, thankfully not that many, probably only a handful, but you know, you just gotta, I always, in everything I do, try to stay calm and like look at the situation. So I just would always encourage people to try to be as calm and think de-escalation as much as you can so that everybody gets to go home safely. Yes. Yes. No, thank you for your testimony, brother. And thank you, especially for just giving those details because yes, my skin color is white like you. And I'm in situations where my family's black and we get pulled over. And, you know, yes, when I'm by myself, I actually, I experience privilege, no cap, no bullshit. I've been let go, all type of fun things. 
But when I'm with my family, or I'm with my wife, I experience some of the most racist shit you can imagine. And so it's so important that you keep your calm, keep your composure, because at the end of the day, when it comes to us, they put me in the front seat or drive just because my skin is white, my family. So it's like, you know, those things that eliminate some things, but once they pull you over and it's on, it's on. And you have to maneuver, you have to stay calm, you have to be patient, but at the same time, your idea is to get through the process as quickly as possible. Yep. I agree. All right, brother. My next segment is Trading Places. And I've been waiting for this segment all episode because I can't wait to get your input. I take two iconic people and swap their lives and we talk about it. You know, like the movie Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy, Trading Places. All right. So I'm going to take the, you know, take it from verses. I'm going to take Timbaland and Trade Places with Swiss Beats. Question number one, will it work? I'm not sure I understand. All right, so you ever seen Freaky Friday or... or yeah, yeah, yep. So pretty much you're going to have Swiss Beats wake up in Timbaland's body, and Timbaland's going to wake up in Swiss Beats' body. Okay. And they're trading places. Got it. So then what's the question? Will it work? You mean as a movie or just period? Period. And, you know, if we did this in real life, they woke up and switched places, would it work? You know, it's all hypothetical. It's fun, and especially with the amount of knowledge you have, I'm like, I'm, I'm just gotta pick his brain. I mean, I don't know. I would imagine it would work because they're good producers and visionaries and innovative. But you know, I, for whatever reason, I don't really think about those type of things. So I don't really. Uh, I'm probably not a good one for this, but. The thing is, they're obviously collaborating and they know each other and I think are getting to know each other better. So I'm sure they have a lot of overlap, but clearly they have a lot of dramatic differences. So, I mean, I think it would work, but at the same time, I'd have to put a little thought into it maybe, but I don't, I don't know. It'd be interesting. Oh yeah, because you have Swiss beats from pretty much the gangster New York sound with Rough Riders, and then you got Timbaland with Magoo coming up with Missy Elliott and the Mob Swing, and you know that whole sounds. Yes, they're different sounds, but they both have the same energy of being innovative. And I feel like yes, it would work, but some major things would definitely be different. Absolutely. And I definitely feel like Rough Riders, if Timbaland was over there, they would have had a little bit more singing, a little bit more melodic back then. And I also feel like vice versa if. if you know, we had Swiss beats on the mob swing and that whole sound would have been a little bit more amped and anthem instead of all love and, and you know, eclectic. Yeah, it'd have been interesting to see, for example, like Swiss beats working with Eve early in the game. I mean, excuse me, Timberland working with Eve early in the game. And Swiss beats working with Missy. That would have been interesting. Absolutely. And that's exactly the point of why I do this, to make you think. <laughs> gotcha. All right. Uh, what would be one thing different if they traded places, from your opinion? Uh, I do believe that Swiss Beats doesn't use either any melody or the same melody in the same way that Timberland does. So I think that that would dramatically have changed the R&B side of what Timberland does, especially. And the rap stuff, of course. 
So that's to me the main difference. Timberland, I think, uses a lot of melody. It's more quote unquote traditionally musical, whereas Swiss Beats is is much more percussion driven and not as much quote unquote musicality. So that I think would be interesting because Missy in particular, and that being uh, the artist I'd say Timberland did the most and had the most success with early on for this exercise would have been the most different because R&B and being on the radio by and large is about melody and Swiss doesn't have that, at least not in the same regard. So that would have been an interesting thing. And then on the flip side, how or which ways would Timberland providing that to Eve had altered her career? Because quietly, even though Rough Riders Anthem was done by Swizz, you know, the majority of the first album in Stark and Ellis High was done by Dame Grease. So it wasn't um, Swizz, Swizz's single, made the album sell but the album itself was done by Dame Grease so it wasn't until Rough Riders Anthem blew up that Swizz became really the the sound I guess for lack of a better way to look at it of Rough Riders and of that movement but Dame Grease was the one who had the majority to work on his Stark and Hell is Hot so anyway I'd be most interested in the female because of what I said, though. That, to me, would be the most interesting. No, that's that's hella interesting, bro. Uh, I'm going to transition out of that into my next segment. It's called Impulse Q&A. You know, we take pretty much questions from the fan perspective and deliver them to you. If you don't like the question, it's all good. You can say pass. But the idea is I want you to answer three questions. All right. Question number one. What is the strangest thing you've ever eaten? Man, nothing too crazy. Probably alligator or something. I haven't had uh, that many dramatically crazy food experiences by design. I try to eat very healthy and I try to eat uh, things that are quote unquote normal, I guess. So I, I don't really try to be experimenting on all kinds of stuff. When you say alligator, you talking about like alligator jerky or you had like some fried uh, gator, like, you know. Yeah, like alligator nuggets or, uh, you know, that type of thing. It wasn't like, uh, yeah, it was like alligator nuggets when I was in Florida or something. Uh, do you remember what it tastes like? Was it like chicken? Or it is it similar. Chicken? It's similar to chicken. It's definitely a little bit different but it's in that same ballpark. I swear, people say that everything tastes like chicken because of the batter. Maybe. <laughs> now, number two. Alright. <laughs> who would you sit next to, dead or alive, on a 10-hour train ride to Europe and why? Uh, well, from a historical perspective, it'd be Malcolm X because I think he's one of the more interesting people I didn't get to meet. And I've done a lot of research into him and there's a lot of things I'd want to talk to him about. Um, and I think he's a very, his story is very fascinating on many levels. And then on the rap side, the guy that I never got to meet or interview that I really wanted to was Easy e 
So it'd be Malcolm X and Easy E. If I could sit in the middle, I'd be good. Wow. And Easy E because I think he, in my opinion, is one of, if not the most important businessman in rap history uh, because of a lot of the deals and the stuff that he did. So I'd really want to talk to him about a lot of stuff. And I know a lot of people that worked with him, that are friends with him and artists that were signed to him and stuff that I've talked to so much about Easy e that he's the only one of NWA that I haven't gotten to know. Um, you know, Cuban Ren, I know the best. Dre, I know the next best. And then Yella, I know the least well, but I've still spent some time with Yella over the years. But uh, Easy, I never, you know, I was too young getting in the game. By the time he died, I was starting to interview the big artists, but, you know, I was just a kid in college and stuff when he died. So it wasn't like I was interviewing all the A-list people right away. I had to work my way up for that. So I didn't, unfortunately, get to meet him or talk to him. Oh, it's the journey and the process. You got to love the journey and enjoy the process. That's just the way it is. Yep. Question number three. If you can make a sequel to any movie, what movie and pretty much why? Well, my favorite movie of all time is Hollywood Shuffle, and they didn't do a sequel to that. Um, sadly, like a lot of gangster rap, uh, which is something I talk about in detail in my book, The History of Gangster Rap, but a lot of gangster rap, unfortunately, even if it was recorded in 85 like Schoolie D or 86 like Ice-T or 87 like Easy e and N.W.A. and stuff, sadly, it still applies today. So Hollywood Shuffle is Robert Townsend is the star uh, director, writer with Keenan Ivory Wayans, and it's basically about a guy who's trying to get into Hollywood, but they want him to play these demeaning roles, and that's all he's getting offered. So it's a satirical movie, but it's hilarious. And unfortunately, much of it applies today still. So I would like to see a sequel on many levels. And I think it'd be interesting to revisit that film and see, uh, you know, maybe the main character's name is Bobby Taylor. So either Bobby Taylor now is a father or a grandfather and what happened to him and the, all the little skits, because the skits that they had were kind of the precursors to what we saw within Living Color. Um, a lot of that I think came from this movie so it's my favorite movie so that's it okay my brother you have survived my awareness segment dropping gems and testimonies survived my trading places it took a little bit but I dragged it out of you and got some gems out of you in that whole thought process and you blew away my impulse Q&A as a reward let's promote what are you excited for coming up projects I feel like there needs to be a documentary on you, but I feel like that's going to come after you get done with putting out all these incredible books and just shedding the light on everything. But bro, let's promote, let's talk about it. Let's, let's get everybody on it. Yeah. Well, you know, I got my shirt on, but make sure to go to YouTube, unique access, ENT, unique access entertainment on YouTube. Please subscribe, like, share, watch the videos. I got a lot of great content on there. Like I said, I got MC Ren on there. I got Jay Prince on there. I got Solo. I got uh, Nice and Smooth. I got Dana Dane. I did a bunch of stuff with Slink Johnson. 
So I uh, did a lot of great interviews with MC8 and Trey D. And like I said, I got Big Daddy Kane on there. I got Master Ace on there. I got so many big interviews that are coming up that I'm very excited about as well. Um, so that's one thing. Then of course my book, The History of Gangster Rap, that's available on Amazon, it's available at Barnes & Noble, Target.com, basically anywhere that you get your books from, they don't have it, they can order it for you. And then in October, I got a book with Gucci Man coming up called The Gucci Man Guide to Greatness. So that's like a self-help book and an inspirational book. So uh, please, you know, support that as well. And then, you know, I do want to do a book or a book and or a, a movie or a series about my life because Juicy J had told me one time uh, in the early 2000s that my story is like the rap version of Almost Famous. So I got a, I've got a little bit of the script worked out for that, but I need to really uh, get that ready so that hopefully in the next year or so, when the time is right, I'll have it ready on deck. So I gotta work on that too. Hell yeah, I can't wait for that. Brother, you definitely inspire me so much. Like, you have no idea, brother, because you are living the dream that I am stretching and, and starting off from the bottom from. But at the same time, you give me hope that there is light at the end of the tunnel and there's so much room to grow in that, that it's, not, it's no longer a fear. It's more of just excitement. I want to make sure I tell you that as we're wrapping it up. Thank you. Wow, I appreciate you. You know, you're doing it. You're doing it, man. You're, you're here. That's what it's all about. You just got to do it. That's it, brother. That's why that Nike slogan works so well. Just do it. Come on. And it lasts the test of time. We're still talking about it. Now, if you notice, my show is different. It's unique. We do some things like the other guys, but we don't like to be like the other guys. And, you know, I know my viewer knows it's coming. I'm going to hit you with it. You got any questions for me? Uh, what's something that's surprised you about me talking to me? To be very honest, I was really surprised people thought you were an old black man because I thought you were like a younger black man just because you were in your 20s. Like, I get it all the time that I, you know, I'm culturally enhanced and I sound black and I can't affect the way I was sound and raised. But to hear somebody else and then hear the impression that they were older, I'm like, holy shit. I, I, don't, I don't know how I feel. They're like, are you an old black man? There you go. Yeah, that threw me off, but it was fun. No, it's real. And that's something like we face because we, you know, to get into the culture, like I've been in studio sessions and the engineer is a white guy and he's he's doing his thing. He's technical and everything. But they would ask me like, all right, we understand he's white, but what are you? And it's just like, okay, the impression I left with them didn't put me in that, that box that I can't be fucked with type thing. And, you know, certain people get put in that box like, no, I'm not going to tell you shit. We're going to keep this to ourselves until he's out the room. And to be accepted in those elements is, you know, something you have to appreciate because your upbringing allowed you to be in those elements. Yeah, a lot of that, I give thanks and credit to my parents and uh, them being very supportive, loving of me and told me to love everybody. So I'm very fortunate to have that too. Yes, trust me, bro. I wish I could say that. <laughs> My father died at a young age. And so, yeah, it's all good. It's the, the you know, the struggle and, and the chronicles that continue. There it is. 
It's Contrast Uncut. It's season three, episode 14. Man, big shout outs to Uncle Snoop's Army and Bobby D Presents. I appreciate you, brothers. I wouldn't be able to do incredibly dope shit like interview Soren Baker and talk about his history and his upbringing and drop gems of diamond that dance before they hit the ground because they look so good and sound so good, but it's the truth. Thank you, Soren, for coming on here. I can't say thank you enough. Appreciate you coming on here and just shedding the light on your history and the amount of people that you've been able to be blessed to work with. Yeah, man, it's an honor. Thank you for having me here. Contrast Uncut. Appreciate it, y'all. Boom. What's up, everybody? It's Soren Baker, and you are tuned in to Contrast Uncut. Big shout out to Snoop Dogg and Bobby D. Thanks for having me, y'all. Thank you, brother. Uh, it is a wrap. I'm gonna go ahead. Bum, skibbity bum, quest love on a drum from the roots of black thought. Are you bishop or you kill on the roof for the juice? CL smooth, you got me reminiscing over you. I had to 1G regulate, mind playing tricks on me. Ghetto boys, better days, jump around house of pain. Mama said, knock you out. Double L, cool J, time still ticking though. Big clock, flavor flame. That's a public enemy, they see me coming up. I be verse, I'm going flip most squad, bust a bust. Feel like pocket, keep your head up. Biggie shooting juicy. Coach is still alive, just let me prove King, nigga Man, I know you guys can't smell this right now, and I ain't talking about none of that other stuff. I'm talking about some of that good stuff, that smell good stuff. I think it's breakfast. What time is it? It's breakfast time. Make sure you tune in to Contrast Uncut no matter what you're doing. Whether you're eating breakfast, you're smelling good food like I'm smelling, or if you're smelling other stuff, we're good to watch too. Make sure you tune in.